welcome to the Autism Podcast. Today we have a guest all the way from Australia called Ginny Grant, who is from the organization Reframing Autism. Thank you so much for joining us, Ginny. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure, really. It's fantastic. And James, how are you doing today, James? We have James Gordon as yeah, well, of course. Doing, doing really well, really excited. It's a fantastic organization and, and Ginny's a fantastic person to talk to about it. So all good. So, yeah, but before we get into your work, perhaps if you don't mind just telling us a little bit about how you entered the world of autism uh, and, and your sort of autism journey. I know you've you had a late diagnosis. Perhaps you might want to talk about what led you to the diagnosis and, and so forth or whatever way you want to take it. Feel free. OK, sure. So I was diagnosed uh, with autism last year at the age of 39. Um, autism wasn't really something that was um, that I was particularly aware of um, until 2015. At that time, both of my children who were very young were showing quite a number of atypical developmental traits. And I knew that quite a number of those atypical behaviours fell firmly in the category of autism. So we received diagnoses for both of our children and that was a very straightforward process. Um, we received those diagnoses within six months of each other. And I think what struck me at the time was um, how similar I am to one of my children in particular. And some of the behaviours that had led us to assessment in the first place were traits that I had also exhibited as a child. And just broadly, I, I really just felt that I could relate to a lot of how she seemed to be experiencing the world and responding to certain things. Um, so I sort of had that just floating in my consciousness for a few years. And every now and then when I was a little bit bored, I had a habit of testing myself using online diagnostic tools that were shared in various groups that I was in. And every time I did one of those tests, I got results that said a strong likelihood of autism. And I didn't really know what to do with that. I wasn't sure if, you know, how accurate these online tools were. Um, and whether it really meant anything or not. But finally, I sent the results um, uh, page from one of the tests I'd done to a close friend of mine who's a paediatric occupational therapist. And I said, so look at this. And she wrote back straight away and she said, look, I'm hardly surprised. Um, and she said that she'd actually been thinking about um, telling me that she thought I was autistic for some time. Um, so um, that was you know job done and it was also around that time that I heard an Australian advocate um, Christy Forbes who's quite well known in the PDA area say in an interview neurotypical people don't tend to go around wondering if they might be autistic and here I was giving this question am I autistic really a significant amount of thought and so I thought okay I'm just going to go and do an assessment and see what comes of it. And I finally got the courage to, um, to see my GP for a referral to a clinic that specialises in adult autism assessment and, you know, booked that assessment. I think that I was also spending a lot of time by then in online groups for autistic adults and uh, I really actually felt strongly connected to those autistic adults. So many of the posts and comments and that sort of thing really resonated with me. And I began to feel a sense of belonging within those communities before I had been assessed. I began to self-identify, but I didn't really talk about it with other people. I, when I became friends with a few real life autistic adults, and told them that I was going to be assessed, no one was surprised at all. They were all really encouraging, really validating. Um, and then I guess I, I had a lot of time to sort of reflect on um, my experiences um, growing up and as an adult. And I knew that I 
had for a very long time had a sense of being a bit different, just often feeling on the outer edges of conversations, um, of groups, and, and at events. I never ever knew who to speak to or what to do at events. I'd always feel very lost and quite stressed um, in any kind of networking or um, formal event. Um, I was really shy as a teenager when it came to socialising um, and I depended on my friends to start conversations and to carry those conversations. I was usually just in the background. Uh, so this, this makes me laugh because um, something people said to me on a number of occasions was that I was intriguing. And to be very honest, I think the intrigue really just came from the fact that I would hold back because I never really knew what to say or do in um, in those social situations. Um, I don't think there's anything inherently intriguing there. People thought of you as sort of mysterious because... Yes, yes, but it was really just that, that, that lack of social confidence. And then I knew, I knew that I had a number of sensory challenges. Clothing is something I've always struggled with. Um, and as a child, I wore a very narrow range of clothes and I still wear a really narrow range of clothes as an adult. I just buy lots of the same item. Um, I don't really feel the need to mix it up or follow the fashions as such. They just, my clothing has to meet my sensory profile, my criteria. A few other things, but I guess all of that um, led me to the assessment process, which was very straightforward and very validating and um, coming away with this greater understanding of myself and an ability to look back on some of those experiences in my life where I felt I didn't understand certain circumstances or um, that I didn't fit in and finally actually understand the why. Fascinating, really fascinating, thank you. So the initial thoughts that that prompted you to, to start sort of engaging with the potential reality that you may indeed be also autistic, like your daughter. Um, yes. When did that initially occur? Was it, was it simply the fact that, that your, your daughter got the, got the diagnosis and then you perhaps, you know, you, you thought, well, if my daughter's autistic, maybe I am, or had you um, also perhaps seen particular characteristics um, or, or traits uh, that your daughter was presenting that you identified with and? Uh, from the time I recognised that um, a number of the traits that um, my daughters were showing um, were autistic traits, I knew that, um, that I too had shown some of those same traits myself as a child. My, one of my daughters was diagnosed with sensory processing disorder first um, and so I thought at that point that perhaps my, the things I could relate to were just more sensory issues. Um, but it was really walking out of her appointment where we received the diagnosis. I, I just still remember walking out of the room thinking, okay, that's really interesting because she, now they're saying she's autistic and I, I can still relate to so much of this. That was probably as formed as that thought was. Um, I certainly didn't start going, that must mean I'm autistic. It was just, I strongly relate to her. And, right. and it just, it seemed logical that if I could relate to her so strongly and we've just learned that this fundamental part of who she is, um, that she's autistic, then perhaps that had meaning for me too. Right, right. That, that, that sounds very similar to your uh, situation, James, right? Isn't that yep. pretty much um, what you described to me often as to how you eventually identified as autistic? So from very early on in my son's life, I've always been a single parent and his full-time carer. Uh, I, and at the time I relied on whatever support was available which wasn't very much. Um, I didn't have autistic friends or know very much about autism. I didn't know that I myself could be autistic. 
and I'd heard a lot about the negative deficit side of autism and that was from what I'd seen online and what medical professionals had told me during his various diagnoses. So I turned to my parents um, and they reacted in the way that they'd learned over their 70 plus years of life. Uh, you know, it's not that long ago that autism was a very taboo subject and was considered shameful and so on. So it's not surprising that they'd want to try and protect me uh, when I was developing and growing up and then in turn protect my son. So their way of protecting us was to really deflect any concerns and to kind of live in denial, which wasn't very helpful. So I personally had to go on a bit of a journey and to come to my own realizations on my own. And that did take a few years. To them, it was it was like, oh, no, no, Daryl, my son, they were adamant that it was anything but autism, you know. They were thought they were protecting everybody, you know. And, and I think looking back, that's probably what they've done to me is try and protect me in, along the way in my life. So whenever um, I've questioned why I struggled so much as a child in my development, you know, they, they were very much, um, oh, no, everybody does that and that kind of thing. And I think that's mm. kind of been a little bit colored my thinking as well. So it took me a, a bit longer to um, realize, to identify that um, my kind of uh, relationship with my son was <laughs> was different than, than everybody else's. And, you know, but it did sink in eventually. And, and it took me maybe eight years or so. You know, so he was around eight when I started questioning it a lot more. Yeah. How, how old was your daughter when she was diagnosed, Ginny? Uh, she was she was three. The other, the, one was diagnosed at three and one was diagnosed at four, but it was the three-year-old um, who, the younger one that um, I'm so very similar to. Um, but it's it, interesting hearing of your experience, James, something that came to mind as you were talking was, um, I didn't involve my own parents in any discussion around whether I could be autistic. I suspected that they would think it was a ridiculous notion. Um, but once I had my assessment done, I actually wrote to both of them. And my dad's a very analytical person. So I included, um, I included some data in the email, um, which I thought would resonate um, with him. Um, but also just explain the assessment process. And both of my parents were immediately very accepting and they ended up telling me some information that might have actually been helpful to me, which was that when I was five, they had me assessed um, and uh, they were told that, yes, I had certain fixations and obsessions and anxieties, um, but, you know, I was... I was talking and I was meeting my milestones otherwise and everything was, you know, a-okay. Um, uh, but apparently, as my own mother had heard more and more about sort of internalised or so-called female presentations, particularly my own daughter's um, diagnoses, she had actually wondered herself whether I might have been autistic. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's a story we often hear with with females, unfortunately, that, you know, that they, they get missed with, with um, uh, uh, the diagnos diagnostic process mm. simply because, you know, these um, clinicians and these these tool, these diagnostic tools that are being used are, are very problematic, you know, and very um, based on, you know, old assessment criteria that yes. are based on stereo stereotypes and, and, and yes. it's more of a male thing and, and so forth and so forth and I think that's a real big problem you know we need to make sure that our assessments are uh, you know not so gender biased and and that it's assessing autism as a, ident a neurological identity as opposed to a uh, anything to do with gender as such um, yes. but um, it's unfortunate because it means that you you didn't get a diagnosis when you, you should have because you are autistic <laughs> you, you don't become autistic through life you are no. or you're not 
Uh, how do you feel about that, that you didn't get a diagnosis that, you, you know, even though you were assessed, you know, it's, it's, I mean, often we hear, we hear stories of people just not even entering assessment because, you know, it was never considered, especially for women, or perhaps it was considered, but because of the stigma, you know, there was too much fear about even going down that road. But in your case, you came close to being, um, yes. I suppose, diagnosed at an well, early well, age. Certainly close to them kind of looking at it more seriously. But the upshot really, I think, was that anxiety became a very, very prominent feature of my life from a young age. Um, and that only increased into my adult years. Um, I've been told um, a number of times that if I had had a better understanding of myself um, as a child and as a teenager, and probably I would say that the, you know, autism identification would have been helpful um, in that regard. But in any case, um, that my mental health issues as an adult would would have been kind of less significant than they have been. Um, I learned to mask and I have many, many memories of copying people directly around me in my teenage years and early adulthood. Um, or if not copying, just sitting back and watching and hoping that I looked like I was part of the scene. Um, uh, so yeah, definitely the upshot was, um, was a lot of masking and, um, and mental health. Although, you know, you could say the mental health issues um, were due to a number of factors. Sure, sure. But um, indeed, if, if you were masking, which sounds like you're confident that you were masking, uh, it is like that would have likely uh, contributed significantly to raise levels of anxiety and, and stress and bur or burnout, yes. emotional burnout um, and so forth. And presumably if you'd had the diagnosis and went through a journey of, you know, self-identification and realisation and self-acceptance more than anything, mm. that would have um, presumably protected your, protected your well-being quite, quite significantly. So it is... So it is a bit, that is a bit unfortunate, but perhaps it's not altogether surprising because, you know, back then, you know, we're only talking about 20, 30 years ago, you know, there was much less understanding about autism. Stigma was even more significant, even though it still remains, especially in some communities uh, and in some countries in particular around the world. And we've made significant progress, but back then, I suppose, you know, it would have been particularly challenging for a female autistic uh, absolutely person. so this was in this was in 1985 so um you know there's there's no way I was going to be given a diagnose, diagnosis diagnosis you know presenting as I did at the time but um you know thankfully things have come a long way and there is greater recognition um you know that so many of these ideas around what autism looks like are just stereotypes um, and that it really can present in, you know, in, in very different ways and, you know, that it's not just females who, who can have that more internalised um, presentation, um, that it's not necessarily a, a gender-based thing at all uh, and, and it really can look very different in, in, in individuals. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. So, so eventually you got your diagnosis and you said that the experience was quite positive and validating, I think you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, would you be able to talk a little bit about that, that particular experience of, of diagnosis and, and how that went? Because James and I hear all sorts of stories when it comes to diagnosis, you know, they do range from quite positive and um, validating to you know, almost traumatic, you know, in terms mm. of the approach that the clinician takes um, and, yeah. and the, stig the stigma that they perpetuate with their language and approach. But I wonder if you could talk us through what your experience was, was like. Sure. Um, I think it, it really helps uh, if you're thinking about assessment for, you know, yourself. It really helps to do some research with um, other autistic people to see who are the, the diagnosticians in your local area who really know what they're talking about? So you did your homework and found um, clinicians that you you felt perhaps would be uh, yes. a good, yes. good fit 
for you and 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 uh, have a, have the right kind of approach to diagnosis because that's quite different in the UK. We don't unless you go private, I suppose. Um, so I went private. Oh, you went private. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so I suppose that's but a big in, advantage, isn't it? Yes. So um, I should say that I went private. Um, in Australia, um, a cost of an adult um, autism assessment and diagnosis might range somewhere between, say, $500 and $1,500. My assessment cost me under $600. So it was a decent amount of money, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't enormous, enormous. I, I felt like it was a, an investment in myself. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I was able to um, save up and justify um, that expense. Um, yes, so very much I think it's important to see if you are going down the private route to, um, to choose a clinician who knows what they're talking about, who is known for, um, you know, adult autism assessment, not someone who's just known to diagnose a whole bunch of conditions or, um, or a sort of um, general psychologist who happens to have an interest in the area. Um, uh, the, um, the clinician who I saw was just so warm and so reassuring. I was absolutely a hot mess when I walked into her office. I was just shaking like a leaf and um, really just so anxious about the whole experience but she reassured me very very quickly and um within the first um i don't know i'm going to say within the first half hour of our interview um uh one of the other practitioners had um, looked over the written assessment stuff that i'd done for them and brought my results in and the clinician looked at it and she said you scored really highly and she said, I, I, I don't often see women score so highly. I can see that they're meeting the criteria for a diagnosis, but in the, you know, in the written assessment part, they might not um, score especially highly. And she said, you, you, your results are really high. And I'm like, hi, okay, good. Um, someone actually can see what, you know, what I um, can see. Um, and then that was a very long interview, um, but at the end of which she said um, she said that um, everything you've said today boils down to um, an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis um, and she ended with a really really lovely comment um, which were words to the effect of the world needs more autistic people it needs more people who bring the kinds of um, uh, different approaches and skills and ideas um, and and that sort of thing that you have um, which was really, which was really lovely. Um, so that was that, and um, yeah, moved on from there. I, I really think that's fantastic that she, this clinician, left you with that positive, um, those positive words. You know, at the, at the end of the assessment, I think the words that clinicians use and the, and, and the the messages that they're conveying. I mean, all the way through, of course, the the process, but in particular the the final conversations are going to be so powerful aren't they because if you yeah. you know if you leave somebody you know with the thought that actually you know this is just a different type of identity there's a lot of beauty in it you know it's it's, it's about diversity and uh, yes and so forth and so forth and so forth if you frame it in that way you're going to give somebody you know a stronger head start towards you know self-acceptance and, and, and self-understanding and, and so forth and so forth than the clinicians who talk of, talk about it in terms of well you know this is a a, a problem and, and you're going to be dealing with lots of challenges and uh, you know yes uh, you're, you're going to need therapies and treatments and so forth and so mm. on. I mean the, the language and the messages that these clinicians put forward are so so powerful because clinicians are going to be viewed as as authorities and and trusted mm. authorities you know these are the pe these are the so-called experts aren't they they're not just giving you a diagnosis but they are as an individual as a as a person viewed in a very different way to everybody else you know and that yes. perception that you as an individual has carries an enormous amount of significance and emotional weight I walked away that day feeling like I'd, you know, just won an award or something. You know, it was um, it was really nice to hear such lovely things about 
my strengths and she really focused on this on the strengths I thought we were going to sit there and talk about all the things I found really hard in my life um, but in fact she really kind of honed in on my strengths which um, you know are quite my strengths are strong but they're also very niche and um, I'd I never really felt like my strengths were very useful I'm a book editor I've spent most of my career being as a book editor and um, I know that I have a very, very good eye for text and seeing patterns in text and spotting errors and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, she, she, she made me feel like I had a lot to offer the world, which was lovely. <laughs> yeah, that was really, really nice. Uh, I'm just going to say, I, I think that's just so important. And I think, um, I know the government here is sort of looking at um, some kind of, mandatory training on autism for the national health service professionals at the moment and I think that would be a wonderful thing for them to kind of translate into their training because it does chime with the sort of the foundational oaths of of clinicians and doctors to um you know to build people up rather than just focus on the deficits which we so often hear about with, yeah. with autistic people that, you know, it's all about the medical model and the, and the deficits. And then we hear nothing about the people's strengths, you know. Mm. Fully, fully agree with you, James, fully agree. Um, that, I mean, it, that is presumably one of the main aims of the organization that you work for, right, Ginny, reframing, or, um, reframing autism. And yes, and a sort of strengths-based approach. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so Reframing Autism is an Australian-based charity. It's run by and for autistic people and their families and allies. Um, the organisation's mission is to uh, create a world in which the autistic community is supported to achieve acceptance, genuine inclusion and participation. We offer um, autistic-led education for families of autistic people. Um, an example of this is um, we recently held a retreat in the countryside for families who were relatively new to a diagnosis and we introduced them to things like neurodiversity um, and uh, all those really important messages that, that are just so critical to a parent understanding early on. We also produce resources to help educate people about autism and we develop autistic leaders. Um, so we try to develop autistic talent. Um, so we offer all kinds of opportunities for autistic people to grow their platform as advocates. Um, but we're, we're also developing um, a training program for autistic leaders who might want to share their knowledge and expertise um, with other families and, and allies. Wonderful. It so, sounds so similar to our charity, if I'm honest, Ginny, as, as to what we, really? what we do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our charity, the London Autism Group Charity, has very similar aims, you know, uh, to promote inclusion and participation and boost mental health and uh, uh, promote neurodiversity. We take a strengths-based approach as well. Uh, and we too have uh, a program called, uh, we call it SOLACE, um, and it's aimed at sort of uh, destigmatizing autism and removing those misconceptions that lead to, uh, you know, negative ways of thinking and, and, and unhealthy ways of thinking around, uh, sorry, for parents and carers of newly diagnosed or recently diagnosed children. Because it's mm -hmm. those parents that, you know, and those families are really vulnerable to, to the stigma and deficits approach to um uh, to autism and, and when they're thinking like that it, it really um it really ruins their mental health and, and they need good mental health in order to support their their children and themselves of course um so we do Absolutely. we do something yep. very similar and we we too also support advocates autistic advocates uh, especially young autistic um advocates uh and uh, yeah so uh, but your organization sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, on your website, reframingautism.com.au, right? Is that right? Reframingautism.com.au. Yes. yes. Um, 
you publish some blogs, don't you, on that website, which are really yes. fascinating. And I've read a couple of your blogs, which I really encourage everybody to go and do who's listening on motherhood and also your um, story of eating disorders. And I just want to firstly mm-hmm. just say, you know, I just want to credit you with being so open and transparent about things and trying to destigmatize these very stigmatizing issues, you know, of, of mm-hmm. particularly eating disorders. I wonder if we could have a conversation about it because, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware that there's more and more research that's linking the prevalence of, uh, of eating disorders among um, uh, the autistic population. Um, and you too have experienced an eating disorder. Would you mind perhaps just telling us a little bit about what um, happened with you perhaps and, and what your yeah, t- sure. eating disorder was? Yeah, sure. Um, so look, um, I didn't just start writing for Reframing Autism. I've been writing for, um, for, for different publications over quite a number of years, but um, for around five years, I was writing for a large parenting website. And quite often I wrote on mental health um, and my own experiences with mental health, starting with um, postnatal um, depression and anxiety, because um, that's just such a common experience for parents. And yet it, there's the stigma remains and it, you know, that it just um, is so disappointing that there remains a stigma for something that affects so many new parents. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, well, certainly for, for in recent years, been really passionate about writing about mental health and writing about my experiences as a way to sort of access some of these topics. And um, as far as the eating disorder um, uh, was concerned, um, so I think um, it happened very, very rapidly. Um, so I decided I was going to lose a little bit of weight and I, um, and I started a, a um, nutrition program using a tracking app. The app allowed me to track my calories and um, my energy um, output. And um, Sorry, Jenny, I, how, how long ago was this? Um, this was um, at the end of 2018. So it really just set out as, oh, I'm going to lose a little bit of weight. It wasn't anything drastic. And I got my hands on on this tracking app and I started tracking my calories um, to reach um, a certain um, uh, number each day. And I guess the thing that that um, probably would have been the, the most telltale sign to begin with was I had to reach that exact number. Now, anyone who's ever tracked calories would probably understand that it's very hard to reach an exact number of calories. But I found it quite easy because I was so diligent. I weighed everything. I measured everything. Um, I didn't. I didn't graze on on any foods. I ate, you know, only everything I ate went into the app. So I was super, super diligent about it. And I found it so easy that I thought, oh, well, I don't need to do that number. I can do this number. It's even lower. I, I don't like to say the number of calories because I don't think that's helpful um, to other people who might be experiencing um, this sort of thing or vulnerable to experiencing this sort of thing. So I rapidly cut my food intake and I found it very easy to do that. Um, and really it was because I am someone who is so rule-oriented um, and I guess that's the autistic side coming through. Um, um, very detail oriented and I like a rule and the app gave me all the rules that I needed to be successful in, in losing weight. Within six months, I think I had, um, uh, I think I was approaching a 20 kilo loss. I'm not sure what that is um, in stone. Um, but in any case, that's a very significant amount, particularly with, with someone with my size, which is quite small to begin with. Um, wow. And, 20 kilograms um, in six months, did you say? Yes. Wow, yes. that is a significant amount of weight. Wow. Um, so uh, I guess, but um, after, and, and after, I reached the point where I almost didn't have to try because my body became so used to it and, like, it was just the plan I followed every single day it was the rules it was what I did it didn't it you know there was something a bit awry because 
you know, I'd never gone on a diet before, but people always talk about dieting being so difficult, but this was really dead easy. Um, and what was sort of driving the whole thing was co-occurring um, OCD, a need to, a need to control, um, you know, aspects of my life and numbers became a true obsession all day long. I would have numbers going through my head, the number of calories I'd eaten, the number of calories I had left to go, the number of calories I ate yesterday, the number of calories in that um, strawberry, the number of calories potentially in my dinner. And so in my head, it was just, I could barely concentrate because I had these numbers going everywhere. And um, it was um, around that six month mark that I was diagnosed with OCD and OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorder um, simultaneously. Um, another way of describing OSFED is atypical anorexia. And um, basically I met all the criteria for anorexia nervosa, but I was not yet in a medically underweight category. So that was the kind of one distinction. It was an atypical presentation um, in that regard. Um, what else? Um, I think, uh, so it was something that I descended into very, very easily, very, very quickly. Um, and it was something that was very difficult to treat because I was so details focused because, um, you know, I was so rule driven and, you know, the, the therapist kept saying, you've just got to stop being so black and white about things. And I'm like, black, that, that's the way I think. <laughs> that's how I think. I can't not be black and white. <laughs> um, but we started by increasing my calories by 10 calories a day, um, which, again, is almost nothing, barely a mouthful. And then we increased by 20 calories a day and then by 30 calories a day. And we went up week by week like this until I reached a point where I was no longer losing weight and then had to go through the awful process of regaining a lot of the weight that I lost in order to recover. So that's where I'm at um, with the eating disorder at this point. Um, I've restored all the weight that I was told I needed to restore um, to be healthy and um, I know I'm not allowed to use any kind of tracking device. I'm not allowed to use a, a Fitbit um, because there is a tendency to use that in the same way. Um, first do 10,000 steps a day and then I've got to do 20,000 steps a day and then 20,000 steps a day is enough and then I've got to do 25,000. And it's, it's all numbers driven again. Um, I'm not allowed to use any kind of fitness apps or, or tracking I'm not allowed to weigh any of my food. I'm not allowed to measure anything. Um, and I understand that all of those things are about making sure that I don't slide back into um, that place because it was a pretty awful um, experience to, to go through. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, how did, it, how did it affect you, you know, having lost all that weight? Did it sort of affect the way you were thinking about things, your mental health more broadly? I mean, it was how did it affect you the, the 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 loss of weight you know when you were at your lowest weight so um i was in when i first began treatment i was in what's sort of known as starvation mode and i was cognitively affected um i had a lot of difficulty concentrating on anything i would lose my words almost constantly I would go to order like a coffee, my, the same coffee I have every single day at my local cafe and I would forget what I needed to say. Um, I had some visual disturbances, um, uh, which were really scary. Um, and I thought they might be sort of signs of, of other more complex mental health diagnoses, but I was told at the time that I was, I was operating on such little nutrition that my brain just wasn't functioning properly. Um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to sleep all the time. I just wanted to be in my bed all the time. I really didn't want um, to be around anyone. Socialization was extremely difficult because to meet up with, um, with friends for a drink or to go out for a meal or, or something involved calories. 
And I had stopped drinking alcohol um, at that point and I still don't drink alcohol and I still can't move past the thought that alcohol is just a waste of calories. Um, so there's definitely still some, <laughs> um, yes. some, some just... you know, I, some thought disorder thinking, I guess, there. Um, but I have now learned that it's okay to meet up with, you know, friends for a meal or, um, you know, to to enjoy that that family celebration which might involve a lot more food than you would normally have because this is how we live this is part of our culture and and our lives and you can't just exist from your bed as i kind of wanted to wow it really sounds like it really significantly impacted upon your your well-being i mean to go into starvation mode and to have this sort of cognitive fog you might call it sounds like it sounds like it really um it really affected you it must be really difficult but it sounds like you're making good pro- great progress at the moment, despite battling it still. It sounds like you've turned yes. things around. Uh, so. I, I'm really, I'm quite, I'm quite healthy now. And oh. I just have to be aware that as soon as my anxiety peaks, then it seems so easy to go back to those um, behaviours. And often the first thought, if I feel extremely stressed, is I know I won't eat. I'll skip my lunch and I'll skip my afternoon tea maybe I'll have dinner. And that just comes, just it's just so close to the forefront of my mind. Mm. So I would like to think that in, in, you know, in the coming months and years that it's not, those sorts of thoughts are not so accessible to me um, mm. and that it's not such an effort to um, contain the eating disorder. But I know now that it could have been a very devastating thing um, uh, for my health if I'd continued down that road. And I was already needing to have um, ECGs every fortnight, bloods done every fortnight. Um, I ended up with a knee issue because all the muscle um, around my knee had, was wasting away. Um, so it was already affecting me in very significant ways. And uh, and I'm, gl- I'm so glad I got treatment when I did because it, it could have been a lot worse is, is yes. what your thoughts are as to why you think perhaps the autistic population are a bit more vulnerable when it comes yes. to eating disorders. Um, and I suppose one of the things, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things already about being quite rule-orientated rule and detail-orientated. Um, I, I like to think of it as sort of achievement-orientated, you, know, I mean, yes. you know? So you were sort of strike, trying to obsessively achieve the 10,000 steps or the 20,000 yes. steps and so forth. Yes. Uh, but also the fact that you experiencing quite a significant amount, of, you know, you're saying that you experienced significant anxiety and that perhaps triggered, triggered things also. Is that why, is that why autistic people are a little bit more vulnerable? Is it because the increased levels of anxiety that they tend to have just because of the, you know, the, the, the masking or the, so, the social pressures and expectations and rejection and all the, all the sort of societal um, problems that lead to autistic people feeling anxious? Yes. Um, so uh, definitely um, uh, many, many autistic people uh, experience anxiety. Um, the other um, related condition um, that is in much greater numbers within the autistic population is OCD. Now, I, it's my understanding that OCD affects something like 2 to 3% of um, the total population. Um, But OCD affects um, autistics at around 20 to 30% of the population. And when you get anxiety um, and or um, OCD, they can really drive an eating disorder. It's it's like the perfect, um, you know, breeding ground for an Mm. eating disorder. Perfect story. Um, OCD Mm. because any rules that a person adopts um, uh, around changes to their eating become so fixed um, in their mind. Um, uh, I mentioned the details, but I think that that sense of control, like I said, as soon as I feel anxious, my brain immediately goes, what can I control? I know it can control my weight. I'm not going to eat. And I think a lot of autistic people do really want control um, in their lives because the world is a really unpredictable place and a scary place at times. So if you can control 
something, um, you know, about yourself so um, intricately, um, then there is a sense of, of satisfaction or achievement, um, as you say. Um, the, only, the other thing that I've, that I've given some thought to is um, around autistic um, ways of eating. And um, I, I don't eat a lot of different foods. I'm really happy eating. I eat the same breakfast every single day. Many days I eat that breakfast for lunch as well. I'm not really someone who's too fussed about um, variety. I, I can eat a variety of foods. I'm lucky in that regard, but um, I'm really happy to just eat the same things over and over again. And in my eating disorder, I had the same breakfast, the same lunch every day, and that was just fine. So I wasn't craving anything different, and that limited repertoire probably um, played into it. Um, but the, the other thing that I, I thought about a little bit when I wrote that article um, was interoception. So um, how a person experiences their physical cues. And for me, I have a heightened awareness of my interoception. Um, for other autistics, it might be a lowered um, sense, depending on the individual. But I think that those body cues played into it as well. And... Um, I was acutely aware of like pangs of hunger um, and if I felt them I knew that I was succeeding um, so as sort of a sense of analysis of those cues but also um, I've never really felt comfortable with feeling a full stomach and so I discovered that I actually feel calmer when my stomach is empty so that definitely played into um, played into it but then I think for a person who is not as aware of their hunger cues, for instance, and who regularly skips meals anyway, this sort of um, this sort of disorder could really run awry quickly or gather steam quickly because they're very used to skipping meals. It's not no big deal to skip a meal um, in in that kind of disordered thinking, I should say. Fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the anxiety uh, and the, 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 the need, this sort of obsessive need for control uh, as a way of coping with that anxiety. And then, you know, as you said, uh, the control turning into obsessions over rules and achievements and details and interoception feeding into it and the, and the sensory experience the uh, as you said the limited your limited sort of repertoire of, of foods it's all it's all a perfect storm isn't it um yes yes it really was a perfect storm and and you know that's why it happened so mm. so fast and overcame unwell so so quickly gosh you've had a lot of challenges haven't you Ginny you know the late diagnosis you know um the postnatal depression uh, other mental health problems, I'm sure, uh, eating disorders, so so many challenges. Um, what what has what has worked for you? Because obviously you you know you're very successful. You're you know a, a wonderful mother to two uh, lovely children. You're working uh, in this wonderful organisation. You know, well regarded in the autistic um, community. You know what? Obviously, so much has gone gone against you. What what's what sort of um, what's what's enab enabled you? I suppose you've had good clinicians that have supported you. Yes. It sounds like, yeah. Um, but what's what other ingredients have have helped been so crucial to your success? Um, look, I think uh, yes, you're you're absolutely right. I have had um, it, it has been a um, a bumpy road as far as mental health is concerned through my adult life but having a really good GP is just so important someone who is passionate about mental health um, is uh, and um, can refer you to uh, other clinicians who are going to be you know helpful to you on that journey um, I, I guess um, I guess I am just a fairly resilient person um, I accept that mental health issues are um, likely to be part of my entire life, but I just try to make good decisions around, um, around recovery. And um, 
I, I wouldn't say that I'm great on the self-care side of things because that's really lacking, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I'm aware of self-care, I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I can completely answer that one, Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question, isn't it? But, I mean, you're definitely doing a lot of things right. Um, I wonder whether the, you know, the autistic community and you have also sort of given each other strength. Um, definitely, and, definitely. Yeah, it just sounds like you're extremely, extremely intelligent person, and, and uh, uh, you know, have, um, uh, you always all figured things out um, uh, extraordinarily well, despite so many effort, um, so many challenges. So yeah, uh, James, uh, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think that. Even though I've not um, had sort of a, an eating disorder, a, a lot of what you were saying did sort of resonate with me there, like the being able to feel the internal workings of the body and things like that. When I've tried to explain that to other people, they just don't know what I'm talking about. But, um, <laughs> you know, especially um, medical professionals, when I'm trying to explain something, they, they just don't understand what I'm talking about. But um, I have been on a diet once and it wasn't, it was just like, I was just sort of being supportive to an ex-girlfriend and she wanted to lose some weight. So I went on the diet as well. And it, what you were describing about it being so easy was entirely the case. You know, um, I was able to hit the milestones that they were setting every week without fail. I just did it. Mm. Um, and it was no absolutely no effort to me and the other people in the dieting club became so um, upset with me i i got <laughs> real sort of feelings from them of you know could see the the animosity building every week where they, they were struggling what's he with doing it. yeah then they would ask me uh, the head of the the person organizing the class would ask me what's your secret you know you've lost it again and i'd just say well just follow the, the program and, and it will happen for you. And, and um, people just became so incensed by that. that um, I think I, I stopped going in the end because my girlfriend reached her weight, the goal, uh, and then I just stopped doing it. But um, yeah, I, I, and I can also um, relate to the anxiety thing because I think what I've been doing is kind of the opposite. I kind of overeat a little bit to to cope with my anxieties when I'm upset or whatever. Um, so it's probably another, you know. Another, I think that's I think that's a very very common one. Um, yeah, another, uh, another vulnerability. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because it does feel good, um, you know. There's a there's a chemical reaction to certain foods like especially um, chocolate or something gives mm -hmm. you a, a pleasure reaction um, in the brain, you know, and um, I'm very aware of that. And perhaps I should be a little, a little bit more aware of, of, of my health. So I, I'm not terribly overweight, but I, but I do sometimes when I've experienced a lot of anxiety and stress, uh, go straight for the, the chocolate side of things. So <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ginny, I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit more about the sensory challenges you experience, because you mentioned, uh, so if, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of things, like, for example, you, you know, that you have a very strong sense of interoception. Um, and you also mentioned earlier that um, you, of course, um, uh, you, you have a limited um, uh, range of foods that you like and, and clothing. Uh, but it might be interesting if you wouldn't mind expanding on and what your sensory um, sort of experience is. Um. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think, yeah, I mentioned the clothing um, being kind of quite a significant one for me. Um, my eyes are very, very sensitive to light. Um, and just about every photo of me, I have my eyes closed. <laughs> I've ruined that many number of photos over the years. It's it's quite embarrassing. Is it the um, flash, the, the flash that comes from the photos? Yes, yes. The cameras. Um, mm. 
Yeah. Um, but then when I'm outdoors, um, I often find that the sunlight can make me feel really dizzy and disorientated, um, especially if I don't have um, my um, sunglasses with me. Um, uh, I'm probably going along with the, the clothing side of things. I'm quite, um, I'm quite sensitive to touch and um, I, I don't feel comfortable like hugging and kissing people um, too much um, in social settings and that sort of thing. Um, uh, um, and, I've, and I've got quite a heightened sense of smell um, as well. Um, hearing, um, I, I struggle a lot with competing noise. Um, uh, and I'm always going around my house turning off like appliances and TVs and radios and unnecessary noise. I wear earplugs um, a lot of the time just to dull down that noise or, or noise cancelling headphones. Um, I find that the, the build-up of noise around me can make me really very stressed. Um, uh, um, I do, as far as kind of um, stims are concerned, I do really like I do really like um, tactile and visual stims. Um, visual stims, I uh, I like to watch quite a few of those videos um, that you see online. Things like um, you know paint pouring or um, <laughs> patterns emerging, um, you know, from things. Um, and then tactile, my my daughters have a bunch of sensory toys that I enjoy just as much as they do. In fact. Um, uh, they, um, you know, they often laugh at how much I enjoy certain tactile experiences um, that, you know, might not seem very adult in nature, but, um, but, but that's okay. I find, um, I find tactile stims uh, really help me to concentrate and stay calm. So I've got a bunch of um, sensory toys that I, um, that I now use. I, I always use things like blue tack and hair bands and that sort of thing before I realized that I was autistic. Um, and then and then I realized I might as well actually just use things that are more sort of purpose built. Um, and so I've got tangles and fidget cubes and um, uh, that sort of thing, which I tend to use in meetings. I, I really struggle to stay still in, um, in meetings and appointments and that sort of setting. Really interesting. Well, thank you so much, Ginny. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, no, I think it's been a really interesting conversation. Um, thank you both for um, having me on your show. Oh, you're very welcome. The honour is all ours. Um, would you mind just uh, before we sign off, uh, just tell our listeners how they can contact you and your, um, again, what, how to contact the organisation and, and that sort of thing? Sure. Um, so Reframing Autism is um, on Facebook. Um, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Um, so you can find our various um, accounts um, depending on which, you're, which are your preferred um, medium. You can also um, look up our website, which is, um, as we said earlier, reframingautism.com.au. Okay, I'll put those links in our podcast description as well so that that might be helpful and and can people contact you uh, individually Ginny? Um, yes they can that's um, that's fine um, I'm I'm on Instagram with I have a sort of advocacy profile there and I'm also on um, Twitter and LinkedIn um, where um, you can find my profile. Okay so if people just search for your name they'll they'll find it yes. right? Okay yeah all right, then. Thank you so, so much for all your time. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really inspiring. Oh, thank you for having me. I'd just like to say thank you, Ginny, for everything you're doing in advocating for the global autistic community and for all your work with Reframing Autism. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. All right, so I suppose on that note, um, we'll sign out and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon, Jenny. Okay, take care, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.